Good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ian. Today we look at another of the devil's central attacks against God's image bearers, where he exercises power over us through the manipulation of fear. However, the gospel brings us hope because Jesus' death has destroyed the devil's power. Thanks for joining us today as we give our attention to diffusing our enemy's exploitation of the consequences of sin by the power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Twice in two weeks, my family got to drive up to the Keweenaw Peninsula to watch Micah battle it out with the other junior varsity uh, football teams. And one of the things that uh, he mentioned while I was talking to him was that uh, I asked, is the team any good? And he said that the coach said, no, we're going to (laughs) win. And I thought, that's pretty gutsy, coach, right? I'm not sure what the best strategy here is because you tell a team, it's in the bag. You're going to beat them for sure. And what's a team likely to do? Yeah, go in there a little unprepared sometimes. And so I asked him, I said, what do you, what do you think is better strategy for a coach? Should, should a coach tell the players, regardless of the team that they're playing, you're going to go in there and you're going to beat them, you're going to win, or they're pretty good. I think, you know, you better be prepared. And he said, without skipping a beat, he said, no, tell us we're going to win. <laughs> Even if we're not going to win, tell us we're going to win. And I, I thought about that for a while, and I thought, you, you know, um, that's, that's probably a lot of wisdom in that. Because do you know that the game of football is almost 80% mental right here? Do you know every single guy that you look across the field looks bigger than you? Even the little ones. They all look bigger than you. And do you know what you start to do in your mind? You start to doubt. You start to fear. And then once you take the field... That 80% already belongs to the opposition. And it's one hit, and now you're back on your heels. And so, yeah, the right answer from the coach is, you're going to beat them. You're going to get in there. You're going to beat them. Because what you're doing is you're instilling in them that confidence that they need. Now, vacuous as that may be for high school sports, listen up, church. You have an enemy on the other side of the field against you. You're going to beat them. You're going to beat him. Not because of your ability, but because he is already defeated by the God-man, Jesus Christ. And as you live in Christ, hear me loud and clear, you have nothing to fear. Don't let the 80% be his victory that you come into this thing afraid. Because he's going to attack. And fear is not something that you need on your side. We need to turn that around and put that on him. You know, there, there are not many times, and I am very cautious to do this, but I've been telling some friends lately that I am sick and tired of the devil's attacks. I have seen it test almost every one of us in one way or another in the past couple of months. And I'm tired of it. And so I know you and I, we need to go in this thing with our gloves on. You need to go into life ready to fight ready to do war, to do battle. Because ready or not, he's coming at you. And so one of the things that I'm, again, very hesitant to do is I'm going to take a shot this morning at the devil. You guys with me? I'm going to take a shot. I'm going to be very careful about doing this and it's going to come at the, the end of our message. But it's one that I want you to be prepared for. 
Because he is attacking us with fear. And fear is an incredibly strong motivator. Do you know that to be true? That fear motivates people? Have you watched the news? What's the news talk about? Good stuff. Bad stuff. Everything. Everything is fear. Be afraid. Be afraid. And that motivates you for more clicks or motivates you to go vote or that motivates you to whatever the world wants you to do because fear is a great motivator. I want you to know something that the devil is going to attempt to dissuade you by fear, causing you to start to pedal out in your brain all of the what ifs, the things that might happen to you in this life. What if your future gets destroyed? What if you lose? What if you suffer? What will people think of me? What if my dreams are shattered? Listen very closely. If Jesus is on the throne, all of that is fake news. All those fears, they're all fake news. The devil's strategy, as we are attempting to look at his playbook, is to come with you to bring you to a place of being afraid. But if... Jesus is on the throne. Nothing he says is true. There's this really awesome verse in Matthew's gospel. As I ran across this, it just, it was like, I want this to be my favorite verse now. And I have too many favorite verses. See, that's my problem. I have too many favorite ones. But I want this one to be my favorite. Matthew 12, 28. Jesus says, but if it's by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is arrived when the spirit of God is conquering and vanquishing every one of those minions of the enemy that would come and try to incite you by fear. Because otherwise you and I might be going to this fight thinking, oh, they're giants over there. Oh, they're bigger than me over there. You're already 80% defeated. When in fact the opposite is true. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. Jesus has all authority. And so we going into this thing need to get a little bit more fired up. And that's my goal for us this morning. Um, I want, this is going to bring us to a couple really, really critical preliminaries. First thing I want you to know is this. It is God who holds the power of life and death. The enemy is going to try to reverse that and make you think, He holds the power of life and death. It is not true. God holds the power of life and death. Death for God is not a difficulty. It is for us. And you know the stories in the Gospels. Jesus comes to someone who is dead and he says they're what? He says they're asleep. That's all the difficulty it is for God to bring someone back from the dead. It will be, as the word of God teaches, simply a word from the Lord. And the dead shall be raised. So trust me, this is not a problem for God, though it seems like it is for you and I. The devil does not hold this authority. The power of life and death belongs to God. I want to show you a few places where this is true. Job's story. This is from Job 14. A person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set the limits that he cannot exceed. Here's a verse that I know you know well from Matthew 6. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life or what you'll eat or drink or about your body or what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? 
Do you see the implication here? Jesus understands this. The number of those days is already set. And one other verse that is extremely poignant for our church this week from Psalm 139. The psalmist looks into the most precious moment of conception. Right into the womb of a mother. And gives us these words. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, I know you and I don't see this sometimes. It can be very difficult when death seems to spring upon us without warning. We must hold to this fact because we're not going to get any further in understanding the scheme or the strategy of the enemy against us. Until we lock this truth down. And I want you to know it gets better than this even. First of all, you and I should take great hope knowing that the power and light of life and death belong to God. But gets even better. Are you ready? Because it's not just that. It's also that he holds the power of life and death after death. Do you know that there's life after death? Do you know that there's death after death? The devil doesn't hold those either. Watch these words from Jesus in Matthew 10. Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That is not the devil. That is not the devil. Should I say it a third time? That is not the devil. We learned last week that the forces in the heavenlies are under the control of God. And so there will be times where Satan and his angels are given a measured amount of freedom for the purposes of God's work. Meaning that yes, Satan can inflict harm. Yes, even sometimes he can bring about circumstances that would result in death. But none of that is happening outside the purview of God's permission, allowance, and foreordaining efforts. God is in control of life and death. And even though he may use the devil from time to time, the devil does not have free reign to bring about death. There is something that the devil has been given free reign, and it's fear. He will prey upon those whom God has redeemed 24-7 with fear. He will enact it through suffering. And so what we're going to do today What we're going to do in our time is we're going to seek to look into a passage of Scripture that will give us biblical insight for how to go to war. Are you guys with me? Give me an amen if you're with me on this. You guys ready to go to war? Put your gloves on. Get your dukes up. Let's go. This is a fight. You're going to be bludgeoned if you are not prepared to know how to stand in defense against these schemes. So Hebrews chapter 2 for us is going to give us much more than we're going to be able to cover in this morning's message, but just enough that I want you to take away uh, that which God would share to us. And as you're turning there, I do want to give one other word of concession. For years and years, I have been the type of Christian who was always irritated at people who blame the devil. Is that you? Anyone else like that? I've always been irritated because people blame the devil. I want to be like, why are you blaming the devil? It's your own fault. Right? You, you know what I'm talking Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? That... There's somebody who's always trying to put blame on the devil when, really, the devil doesn't have to do any work with you. I know you. You're your own trouble. 
I'm, I'm backpedaling on that a little bit as I've been studying the devil. I want you to know this morning, I think the devil lurks around every corner. I really do. I, I, I think that throughout our lives, there is continual attack that's happening. But here's the important point to know, that if you at any point want to say, the devil made me do it, as much as I'm going to tell you, I actually think that there's a lot of truth to that. Make sure you hear that that does not remove the me of that statement. The devil made who do it? So who done it? Not the devil. Okay, everybody get the contrast? This is, this is just a little concession here because I want you to know that I think I have had correction according to the spirit of God. That when somebody says the devil made me do it and I in the past was like, yeah, it's your fault, not the devil's fault. That actually I'm more like the devil is there. The devil's totally attacking you with this. But at any moment we're going to acknowledge the devil's work. Do not think that that removes your own responsibility to stop giving the devil what he wants. You guys with me on that? Yeah, he's going to come with temptation. Today's sermon is not the temptation sermon. That's coming in a couple weeks. (laughs) But I want you to know he is Always attacking. His angels have, uh, have ways of distorting our minds, even within the church, primarily within the church. So many attacks over and over. Just make sure that you know it is you who are the one who decide to yield to him or yield to Christ. A good friend of mine told me here this morning, you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. Who's your master? Who's your master? Who are you going to serve? And I want you to know that, yes, the devil is there asking and pining and demanding for you to serve him. You and I need to say, resist. No, get behind me. Here's the, here's the word of God. Okay, everybody good on that? All right, here we go. Hebrews 2, verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we're speaking. Can, shoot, there's so, I, I'm going to spend 30 minutes on that one verse. Look at that verse. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we're speaking. We'll get into it a little bit more. Paul will talk about this as well to the churches. That God has entrusted the judging of the nations to, to you guys, to the church. That's pretty incredible. Okay. Have I rocked everybody enough? Then one verse. This isn't even what I talk about. It's amazing. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him, yet... At the present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. 
So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Wow, there's a lot in here. There's a a lot. Now, I want to build out three observations to which we're going to bring some conclusions to. The first is this. This is what the writer is trying to get you to see. Jesus's humanity is the requirement for his interceding atonement and for our hope. Jesus's humanity is the requirement. Now, Jesus is God. Make no mistake on this. Fully God. John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 says, and the Word was made flesh. Jesus is God. But Jesus is also human, just like us. The writer of Hebrews is going to go on to talk about how sacrifices that are made by bulls and sheep and goats and doves, they just don't take away sin forever because they're not a commensurate substitute for us because we're human. We're not goats and sheep and doves. And so what we need is a human to fulfill God's righteous requirements. That was Jesus. So if you look with me in the text, verse 14 says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Guys, you need to know how good news this is. There is no version of Christianity where God sits enthroned far away, distant in another world, saying, good luck, you losers. Good luck, sinners. Good luck. He came into our mess. He came right into it. I can't tell you what kind of good news that is. Verse 17 is very similar. Look with me there. It says, for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful merciful and a faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. This is starting point. Observation number one is that there is something special about the humanity of Jesus that is required both for our atonement and for our hope. Okay, guys with me on that? That's number one. Number two. Suffering is Satan's aim and attraction. I couldn't think of a better way to describe it than that, but I think I can explain it a little bit better. Satan's goal is to get you to suffer because when you suffer, you're in fear. And Satan will always be looking for those who are suffering. Those moments, and you're going to have them, folks. You're going to have really bad days. They're going to happen to you. 
And when you do, I promise you the devil is going to be anxiously looking to exploit you by fear in those moments. It's like uh, we've got some trail cams out for bow season. It's bow season right now, right, Michigan? Is that, is that why nobody's here today? Opens today. Sorry. Opens today. That's right. So we, we got cameras, and I'm always looking on the cameras because I have them positioned in different places so that I can see where the 30-pointer is. Right? Because once I see where the big buck is, guess what? That's where I'm going to go. And I'm going to start firing arrows. Some of you know some of the stories of my hunting skills. No, that's how it goes. The devil's going to do the same thing. He's got his cameras out right now. He's going to look for those moments where you have suffering in your life. Those aches and pains, those difficulties, those turmoils, those trials, those doubts, whether they be financial, relational, emotional, whatever they are. Camera's watching, and as soon as he spots it, he's going to take up right there, right at you, trying to sling those arrows because that's his aim. Now, the writer helps us to see that God knows this is true. God knows that's the way that Satan works. In fact, look with me on a couple of verses here. Uh, Matthew 13, 16, Jesus says, Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years? Who's getting the blame here? Satan's getting the blame. Acts 10, watch this one. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of... There it is again. Devil's looking to find those who are suffering. Those who are hurting. This comes in the book of Revelation too. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. I, I want you to see that God knows that this is how it works. And so that's why, look with me back into Hebrews. Look with me in the text. It says for us in verse 9, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he what? What's your Bible say? Because he suffered. If you look at the next verse, verse 10, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through what? Yeah, let me do, this is a good Bible study question that we can get into more depth. You might read that and be like, wait a minute, Jesus was made perfect? Wait a minute, this, something's, something doesn't sound right here. I thought Jesus always was perfect. Yes, that is true. That's not what the writer means here. The writer is talking about Jesus' glorification onto his ascension. That's what he's referring to. How did Jesus get there? What was the path Jesus took to get there? Yeah, this, pact, this, this place of completion, this place of perfection, was the end of a long, long path that was filled for Jesus with suffering. Look at verse 18. Because he himself suffered... When he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I, I want you to know it is really, really good news for you and I that God knows this is true. Satan's aim and the thing that he's just drooling over is to look for the ways that we suffer because that's where he's going to attack. God knows this. And that is why Jesus suffered. All right, one more observation. This world is Satan's claim but it was given to man. 
You believe that? Satan is going to claim it. Um, if you look with me back to what the writer of the book of Hebrews has to say at the beginning of our passage, this is in verse 6, 7, and 8. It says that you, in verse 7 says, you made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. That little phrase right there. This is Psalm 8, by the way. So the, the Christians, about 2,000 years ago, they would gather for church like this. And one of their favorite Psalms was Psalm 8. Because they read Psalm 8 seeing it's talking about Jesus. Look at look what God did. God made man where? A little what? The, you guys with me on this? All right. Angels are up here b- before man in creation. God makes man a little lower than the angels. But then what does God do? He crowns man with glory and honor. How do you think that made the angels feel? How do you think that makes Satan feel? He, he has crowned man with glory and honor. This is why he began in verse 5 saying, it's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. That's our job. That's the human job. When God made man on the earth, he said, I will make him in our image and likeness. And the angels are like, what? I thought, I thought we were your favorite. And now you've made... These smelly little earth creatures, your favorite? <laughs> and, and Satan, above all, hates you. He hates you because God made you in his image. And God's plan was to have the human be the one through whom everything else is under your feet. Now, we get to verse 8. In putting everything under him, God, nef- God left nothing that is not subject to him Yet, at the present, we do not see everything subject to him. I don't know if you feel the weight of that statement. Do you feel it? Do do you see everything subject to man? Do you know that's how it was created in the garden? Do you remember? God said, all this I give you. Look at at that. Check it out. All this I give you. You can eat from this tree. You can eat from this tree. You can eat from this tree. All the birds of the air, all the fish in the sea. You're to rule over them. You're to manage the garden as if I were there. Just don't eat from the one where you think you're smarter than me. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave everything to us. And then who did we listen to? Ultimately, we did not listen to God. Um, I want you to see how the church has used this verse right here. It shows up in 1 Corinthians. I want you to see if you can identify the human that they think it's fulfilled in. 1 Corinthians 15. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that it doesn't include God himself who put everything under Christ. Who's the him? It's not you. It's Jesus. All right, one more if you didn't catch it. This is from Ephesians 1.22. And God placed all things under his feet. It's the same verse. It's Psalm 8. It's the exact same verse that the writer of the book of Hebrews uses. And he appointed him to be the head over everything in the church. Who are we talking about? Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. Matthew 28, 19. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus has fulfilled this. Jesus is the, is the ideal human. He is the one that you and I now hitch our wagon to. I'm holding to Jesus. Jesus is all I have. Jesus is the one who did it all. He has everything put under him. Except you and I don't see that in our own lives today. I want you to know that the world is going to be claimed by 
Satan, but it was given to man, not to Satan. Now, you got to give me just one minute here because I had, I had a real struggle this week. There is a way in which the devil gets referenced through scripture that gives me an ulcer. He's an imposter. You know that, right? He's an imposter. Watch how Jesus refers to him. This is John's gospel. Jesus says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Again, in chapter 14, he says, I will not say much more to you for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. Chapter 16, the prince of this world now stands condemned. Why, why do you keep calling him prince? Do you see, are, does that bother you? That bothers me. He's a jerk. I hate him. Stop calling him a prince. But it's a prince with concession. Prince of what? Mm, don't lose that. Don't lose that. In fact, uh, Paul's going to pick up that same idea. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And who? The ruler of the kingdom of the air. Why in the world do they keep giving this accolade of royalty, calling him a god, calling him a ruler, calling him a prince? Do you know why? Because we did that to him. We did that to him. In the garden, God gave us instructions. Yes? And did we listen to God? No. We treated as Lord, meaning the person over us, the one that we obeyed. And who did we obey? It wasn't God. It was the devil. And who did, by the way, go back. Who was it that God put in charge? Was it the devil? Who was it? It was us. And who did we listen to? Are you guys tracking with me on this? How in the world did the devil become a prince? Because we made him. We did it. Now, I'm going to come back to this because this is going to be an important component in our battle against him because the devil's only given the authority that you give him. You'd think that the easiest understanding of that would be stop giving the devil authority then. Look with me back into the garden. Here it is. Let's see if it shows up in Genesis. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom, here it is, she ate it. She took some and ate it. And she gave it to her husband who did what? He ate it. That was the moment. Right here. You just took your crown and you said, all right, devil, you be prince. You, you get to rule us from now on. It has bothered me this entire week the way the New Testament speaks of the devil. It's given him far too much honor and royalty than I care to pay to him. And I got to think, why in the world does it speak that way? How did this happen? And then it occurred to me, it's my fault. I did it. I'm the one who treated him as though he was in charge. Are you guys with me on this? Let's see uh, if fear shows up. Because remember, the MO of the devil that we're studying today is fear through suffering. The first fear shows up right here in the middle. Look at what the serpent says. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So the woman heard that, and then she took some of the fruit. Do you know what she heard right here? Oh, you mean God's keeping something from me? Do you guys know the contextual phrase in our culture, FOMO, F-O-M-O? Yeah, there you go. It's the fear of missing out. Do you know that's what happened right here? She should have said, I don't care. Satan says, you, you do this and you will get this great thing. And you should say, shut up. I don't care. That's what she should have said. But fear, fear of missing out was the thing that motivated Eve. Do you think fear shows up again? Here's the rest of the story. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together. They made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called them and said, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was. The devil did it again. This is what he will do to you. He will lie to you and he will instill into your mind fear that will separate you from God and God's will. I I just want you to see as we've studied this every week. We find it right there in Genesis again and again and again. Every one of these strategies of the enemy shows up right there in the first three pages of the Bible. So a couple conclusions for us. These are critical. Number one, Jesus' death and resurrection has destroyed the devil's power. That was worth an amen. I heard some silent ones from you guys. That was good. So here's what happens. Uh, In the scriptures, you have... The nations being divided according to uh, what Deuteronomy calls the sons of God, meaning that there are spirit entities that are acting as rulers over the nations. And God chooses one nation. You guys remember the story in Genesis? He chooses one man. What was his name? Father. Good. So Abraham becomes God's nation. And God is going to fulfill his reclamation, reclaiming of the earth through this nation. Every single one of them is going to mess up in some way, except one that comes at the very end. The Israel of God, his name is Jesus Christ. And so this is God's strategy. Meanwhile, you still have the nations under enslavement of powers and rulers and principalities and authorities. These are all terms that the Apostle Paul gives to refer to this slavery and bondage that is given over the nations. And Jesus beats them all. Do you want to know how? This is awesome. We sang about it today. It comes in Colossians 2. Paul says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to what? Yes. Oh, the wonderful cross. He nailed it to the cross. And do you know what God did in that moment? Having disarmed the powers and the authorities. Anything that would lay claim over, over the human creature. Remember, because what did God do? Angels are here. He made you where? Little lower. But then what did he do for you? Crowned you with glory and honor. And the angels hate it. I don't know about God's angels. The devil's angels, they hate it. But the cross is where they are disarmed. The cross is where he makes a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Um, One other really great verse. I'd love for this to come up in a Bible study sometime. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, 
But not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. Don't, don't get lost here. We're talking about spirit entities again. The rulers of this age who are puppeting the minds of those who are against the glory and the will of God. He says, no, we declared God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. Watch this now. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Isn't that a funny statement? Do you see what Paul does here? Paul deduces that it's through the cross that they've been disarmed. That they no longer have authority over you. That the message can go forth to mankind. You don't have to be afraid anymore. He's triumphed through the cross. And all, the, all those demons would have been like, shoot, we, we probably shouldn't have crucified them. We thought that was the right thing to do. This is Paul's conclusion. If they knew that God was going to remove their control of authority to lurk fear over your hearts through the cross, then they never would have crucified Jesus. But they didn't know it. They didn't understand it. God did. God knew it. Which, which for us today brings us back to this truth. Jesus' death and resurrection has destroyed the devil's power. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Number two. Jesus understands human suffering. I don't know if there's better news for you today than this. Anyone who is feeling the pain and the weight of the brokenness of this world, listen to the gospel news. Jesus understands. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. John 16, 32 and 33, Jesus says, A time is coming and in fact has come. When you will be scattered, each to your own home, you will leave me all alone. Have you ever felt that pain? Being left alone, feeling abandoned, unloved, rejected. Have you ever felt that? Do you know who else knows what that feels like? Jesus knows what that feels like. Yet I'm not alone. For anybody who ever is feeling alone, you get that message as well. You're not alone. Jesus says, my father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you'll have what? Say it good and loud. In this world, you'll have what? You're gonna have trouble. Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome this world. I want you to know that this truth right here means that God is not dealing with you with latex gloves. (laughs) You guys know what I mean by that? The, The dogs, my wonderful dogs, decided to use the carpet as a bathroom again. And so what I usually try to do is I get paper towel and I lay it down and then I just like step on it like this from a distance. And then it wasn't soaking it all up. And so I got down there and when I, when I wiped it with the paper towel, it got all over my hands. Has that ever happened to you? That's the worst. Ruined my whole day. I had to take a nap. It was awful. You, you know what you do if you don't want to get your hands dirty? You, you put on the latex gloves so that you're inoculated from the yuck. But you know, that's not what God did with us. God's not wearing any gloves. God's not trying to stay distant from your suffering. He went through it all. He went through it all. The writer of the book of Hebrews says again and again and again, through suffering, by suffering, in suffering, he suffered death. Jesus knows. All right, number three, the devil's power isn't death, 
but it's enslavement through fear. This one floored me. It does say in verse 14 that he holds the power of death, that is the devil. But the writer doesn't end there because it's more nuanced than that. Remember, the power in life and death does not belong to the devil. It belongs to who? God alone holds the power in life, of life and death. So what is he referring to in verse 14? It says he has the power of death. He qualifies it in the next verse. Look at 15. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their what? There it is. There it is. He doesn't have power over death. He has power over the fear of death. That's all the devil has. He has lies. He has words. He has attacks of fear. If for some reason God allows the confusion work over the human by the work of the enemy to kill and to bring about death, that is under God's purview. The devil does not have that free reign. The only thing the devil has free reign over is fear. And that's what he's been doing forever for us. He's been holding us enslaved, enslaved with fear. You guys remember the story of Job? God, God brings up Job. The devil's like, that's just because you're taking it easy on him. Like, really let him have it. Take away all the things that he thinks he loves. Just take them away and he'll curse you to your face. And God says what to Satan? Okay. Give it a go. And then the text unfolds that somehow that's what the devil did. He brought about the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. Says that he brought down lightning from heaven to kill his animals. Then in chapter 2, the devil comes back again. He's like, well, that's just because he's healthy. And God says, you're not allowed to take his what? You're not allowed to take his life, but go ahead. Touch his body and see what happens. And somehow the devil does that as well. I want you to know there are moments where God will allow... The devil to have a measured amount of havoc in your life. But that's not the power. Do you know that you, even in the midst of the flames, don't have to be afraid? You guys know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Awesome one, right? The king says, I'm going to throw you into the furnace. Make it hotter. Make it hotter. I'm going to throw you in there. And what do they say? Throw us in the fire, man. Go ahead. We want you to know our God can save us. We're not afraid of you. We are not afraid of you. I, I want you to know this is, this is what the devil has over you. Remember, we already read the verse in Matthew. Don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul in hell. Satan has no power over death beyond that which God allows. He does hold you in fear. And so verse, for, verse 15 tells us he came, Jesus died, to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And so if fear is the thing that's holding us hostage, what do you and I do to combat this? I want to give you three things today. This this is the flip side. This is our game plan. This is when we go onto the field, church, this is what you need to do. Now, I want to save number one because it's the best. So I'm going to start with number two. Here it is. Bring your suffering to the one who suffered for you. That's the first thing you need to do. What did Jesus tell us? In this life, you will have trouble. So when you have trouble, you need to bring it to the one who suffered for you. Now, I know that that still sounds like a Christian platitude. All right, pastor, no problem. I'll take care of that next. Like, it frustrates me sometimes that we just don't, we're not able to really talk about what does that look like? So let me just give you a little picture. 
If you're with me that this is what you need to do, because this is what the text says. He suffered for you. Look with me back in verse 18. Because he, he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Why would you not go to the one who can help you? When you are suffering, bring your suffering to the one who suffered for you. I want to give you a picture of that. The best picture I have is Jesus himself, Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. Here it is. You ready? My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. You need to pray that. Look, when, when your life is in the pooper, <laughs> when you have the bad day that may still be ahead of you, when that happens, go to God and say, take it from me. But that's not all Jesus says. So you need to do what Jesus does. Look what he says. He says, yet not as I will, but as you will. And believe me, this is easier for you and I to say right now in church than it is to actually do when you're going through it. Nevertheless, I have nothing to give you except this. You need to bring your suffering to the one who suffered for you. And so here's my question. How are you handling it? Well, what are you doing when you suffer? When I was in college, um, I struggled with pride. And at one point, my world that I created came crumbling down. And so I went to McDonald's and ordered six cheeseburgers. (laughs) And I drove to a cemetery and I ate my cheeseburgers. Who thinks that was a good decision? How many of you, I hate to throw McDonald's under the bus today, but how many of you feel good after eating a bunch of McDonald's? Yeah, right. Yeah, it tastes good going down, but I'm telling you, listen, that's not the right response. That's not, what, that's not what I should have done. I, I shouldn't take in my pain and try to throw it over me through any sort of a coping mechanism. That's not the right answer. Sometimes I struggle with... Um, boy, you're, you're all real curious to see how I finish that <laughs> sentence. Um, I don't even know why I'm saying this now. It's church, so I can confess a little bit. Do you know what I struggle with sometimes? I struggle with wanting to complain. I really do sometimes. And I know that's coming from my flesh, and I know I shouldn't. But sometimes I get frustrated, and so it almost comes across as a kind of gossip. Now, am I the only one in church today that struggles? Come on, help me out. Anybody, anybody else struggle? Okay, so those moments where I really want to gripe and complain, do you know what the wrong thing to do is? The wrong thing to do is to go find some little buddy or friend who's also struggling and get this little posse together so we can all feel bad together. <laughs> it's the wrong answer. That's sin. My gluttony, that's sin. Anything that isn't this is going to be a form of sin in my life. And so I want you to know you're going to be attacked with fear and God's going to utilize that fear through suffering. He's looking for it. He's thirsty for it. He's trying to enact it in your life. When it happens, church, bring your suffering to the one who suffered for you. Number three, which is kind of number two, this one is huge. As a sojourner, what's a sojourner? Yep, they don't belong here. Alien, non-resident. 
immigrant, not immigrant, that doesn't work, sojourner, somebody who's just passing through. You as a sojourner need to set your hope beyond this world. And um, we, we just don't have time to read all of Hebrews, but if you get to chapter 11, do you guys know what? So Bible students, quiz time here. One word, what's chapter 11 all about? Faith, good. It's all about faith. Uh, just a couple little verses from that. This is 13 through 16. The writer says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them at a distance and welcomed, welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I want you to know, set your hope beyond this world. And when you do, you'll disarm the devil. If you are an American dream thinking half in, half out Christian, if that's you, the devil has so much to attack in your life. But if you can say, like the psalmist, what have I on earth? What have I on earth? Besides you. And I have nothing in heaven that I desire except for you, God. If you and I learn to set our hope beyond the sojourning of this world, the devil has just lost all his ammunition against you. Because what's he going to take away with fear? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Could lose it all. Well, I need some more food. What about my clothes? What's Jesus say? Don't worry about what you eat. Body's more than food. Don't worry about what you wear. Look at the birds. He takes care of them, loves them. You're better than them. He's going to take care of you. Don't worry. You can't add an hour to your life. Um, if you have a sibling, I remember being a kid riding in the back of the car with mom and dad. And if you really want to irritate your sister, you know what you do? Take stuff from her. I heard this a lot. Ryan! Remember that? It was just like that all the time. Take stuff away. And then she takes something of mine. And do you know what? If you really want to get her, don't let it bother you. You took it. doesn't bother me. What do you mean it doesn't bother you? I'm taking this too. I don't care. What do you mean you don't care? Oh, I'll drive her crazy. <laughs> hey, let's do that to the devil. He's going to try to take. He is. He's going to try to steal. What's the thief come to do? Steal. Kill. Destroy. That, that's what he's going to want to do to your life. If you have set your hope beyond this world, you've just disarmed him. Take it, take it. Which I know, which I know is easier for us to say today than it is to really live through. But this is true. Where you've placed your hope is where Satan is going to attack. Wherever you've placed your hope, that's where he will attack you with fear. And if we're fighting against fear, here's what we need to do. Number one, and this is the best of all, Hold on to this one. Fix your mind on the living Jesus. We are told in chapter 2, verse 8, you got to look with me here again. In putting everything under him, God has left nothing that's not yet subject to him. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to him. Verse 9, but we see Jesus. This, this world is a bunch of, oh, it just drives me mad. Trouble that it has. And I don't see everything subjected the way it was supposed to be. But do you know who I do see? I see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. In fact, if you, where, where do we get to here? We, we made it to all the way end of chapter 2. Look with me in verse 18. 
At the end of chapter 2, it says, because he himself suffered when he is tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Look at chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your what? Fix your thoughts on who? On Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful. Again, that was awesome. Perfect. Every time. Every time. I love it. We planned it that way. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. If you didn't catch it here at the end of Hebrews. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Look, when it gets dark, when it gets lonely, when you run into those moments where fear is coming all over to enslave you. Remember, that's what fear does is it enslaves us. I want you to look to Jesus. I want you to... Pray to Jesus like, um, like we, we have modeled when Jesus prays to the Father. And so if you're with me today, I'm going to take a shot right now. You guys ready? Listen closely to the word. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like sands on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and he who was seated on it, the earth and the sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead that was in it. The death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with man and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. Amen. You guys with me? Put your gloves on. Put your gloves on. Let's go into battle. Let's fight. Let's pray.